I start with hate, the Bible leaves me no choice. I truly believe that all scripture is inspired and profitable for teaching. I don't actually think that we believe that in the church. Because if we truly believe that all scripture was inspired and profitable for teaching, then we would teach all scripture. The reality is we don't. So the Bible talks about the hatred of God. I do like the fact that the book starts with hate and ends with love. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. Sometimes we don't like talking about the things that God tells us about himself and us in the Bible. We don't like to admit it, but it's true. Here's why. The Bible tells us that God hates. How often have you heard a Christian or someone say to you, you're not to hate? You're not to hate, but God hates. Or you're not supposed to get angry, or you're not supposed to be wrathful, that's wrong. Or you're not supposed to be jealous. But you see, God gets angry and wrathful. God gets jealous and he weeps. But God also has joy and compassion and love. Today is part two of my conversation with David Lamb, author of God Behaving Badly and his most recent book, The Emotions of God. If you haven't listened to part one, go back and do that first. It will give you the setup for this episode. Today, we are getting into some of the specifics of the emotions God has and how they work themselves out. Some things you might find surprising. Some things are simply an important reminder, even if we do already know them. This conversation is possible because of listeners like you. And we want to offer you our gratitude for your presence and support. Your engagement and enthusiasm have been instrumental in shaping our ministry into a platform that fosters deep conversations and meaningful connections. At Apollos Watered, we strongly believe in the power of giving. We strive to provide enriching content that nourishes the mind and soul, and we are committed to maintaining the quality and growth of our ministry. However, To do that, we need your help to continue on this path of exploration and discovery. If you have found value in the episodes that we've shared, we invite you to consider giving back. Your contribution, no matter what the size, can make a significant impact on the future of Apollos Watered and the meaningful conversations we facilitate. Your giving allows us to invest in the resources, equipment, and expertise necessary to produce high-quality episodes that delve into the emotions of God and explore the depths of theology. It supports our mission to bring you thought-provoking discussions and create a space where wisdom and enlightenment thrive. If you feel inspired to give, simply click the link in your show notes. There, you'll find a secure and convenient way to contribute to the continued growth and sustainability of Apollos Watered. Your generosity will be deeply appreciated and will directly fuel our ability to bring you more captivating episodes that resonate with your curiosity and thirst for knowledge. We understand that not everyone may be in a position to give at this time, and we genuinely value your continued listenership and support in other forms. 
by simply sharing this episode, engaging in conversations, and spreading the word about Apollos Watered. You contribute to the growth of our community and help us reach more individuals seeking intellectual and spiritual growth. Thank you for being a part of our journey and our community and for considering the power of giving. Your support fuels our passion and together we can continue to explore how to fulfill the mission of God where we are. Now, let's get to my conversation with David Lamb and the emotions of God. Happy listening. And whenever we're talking about the emotions of God, and again, I go back to the, the purest form of what that emotion is, we see what it should be and what it could be that that we do in part, right? We we don't do we do it imperfectly. And part of us growing in maturity is understanding when those emotions are are correct or when they're not correct. And, and this is where we look to others. We understand in community, we look to the person, first of all, the word of God to see how God himself reacts. Cause like with my, I see it with my children and, th- and this is an imperfect illustration, but one of my sons would cry every time something would go wrong. And I had to learn to show him like, not that your emotions are, are right, but sometimes they're incorrect. And I, and I would have to say to him is it's, I don't disagree with crying. I'd say to my son, I'd say, is this cry worthy at this moment in time? That's a great and, question. Because it, it, it's not that I don't want my sons to cry. I mean, I cry, you know, oh, um, yeah. it, I, I cry when I hear my voice on this show. Cause I'm like, am I that bad? Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, um, but I mean, we do, we even laughter joking around like this. This is, I still think this is a part of who we are. And, and I think when I talked to Dallas Jenkins about this, as we were discussing the chosen, he brings out something in the humanity of God that in, in, the, in the humanity of the disciples, because it's my theory that if you go back over a hundred years, we were too in touch with our humanity that we needed to be in touch with the deity because we were so susceptible to the everyday emotions of life and death and all those things. But as time's gone on, technology in some ways has separated us from the devastation of death and pain and disease. I mean, we still experience it. We're isolated, but it's like, we need to let, we need to remind ourselves that God himself is in touch with our humanity, that God understands these things. And so, so, so this is what I appreciate about it. And and that's why I wanted to break down even in these emotions. You said that there are, you've chosen seven. Okay. Seven. Not by chance, I take it. You didn't do six. You did seven. Is that by chance? Are you staying a little a little numerology in there? Or was that just seven that you noted? Or was it your publisher that said, let's go with seven, not eight? There, there were seven, there were seven that seemed to be to be the most um clear um and you know how do you distinguish between love and compassion uh, sometimes it's hard to distinguish between um anger and hate but um seven's a good number and that's just kind of how it worked so it's a in my in my god behaving badly i basically kind of have seven main chapters uh I like seven. It's a biblical number, the number of completion. It's the number of Dave books, Dave's book, main chapters. Yep, seven. Well, let's, let's start off with the first one that you address. And I went, okay, we're going, we're going, I mean, we're going full bore. The hatred of God. Let's just get that out of the way really quick. Because people are like, especially in our culture today, wait, God doesn't hate 
God doesn't hate that says the person confidently who's never read the Bible in their life. That's like, well, read the Old Testament. And then they go, well, that's the Old Testament. Ah, same God. It's, it's not like he just said, hey, I'm going to shed, you know, I'm going to shed this part and to show you who I really am. You know, it's like I'm jettisoned. Like the Old Testament God is like those booster packs on a rocket. Like I shed it just to get me into the New <laughs> Testament. It's like, yeah. no, no, it's the same yeah. God. It's the same God. So. Let's talk about the hate of God here for a moment. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure people are thrilled because people are questioning. They're probably pulled over right now. They've stopped what they're doing. And they're like, wait a minute. Did he say God hates? Yes. God hates. How does God hate? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a hard question. Whenever I speak on the hatred of God, I always preface it by saying, I hate talking about hate. I really, <laughs> really hate it. Um, uh, I, I, and I kind of, there's part of me that regrets that I started the book with it. But I start with hate. The, the, the Bible leaves me no choice. I truly believe that all scripture is inspired and profitable for teaching. I don't actually think that we believe that in the church. Because if we truly believe that all scripture was profitable, was inspired and profitable for teaching, then we would teach all scripture. The reality is we don't. So um, the Bible talks about the hatred of God. I do like the fact that the book starts with hate and ends so, with love. Hold on. How does it start with hate? How do we start the Bible with hate? It's God made everything and it was good. How do we get hate? Yeah. Well, the good news here is the Bible doesn't talk about the hatred of God very much. It's a minor theme. In fact, of all the emotions of the seven emotions that I talk about, it's the one that I had the hardest um, time finding biblical texts to, to substantiate. It doesn't talk about it very much. So that's great. Um, love shows up like a thousand times in the Bible. Anger shows up a lot. Hate, not so much. Um, but, you know, uh, Malachi 1, uh, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What are you saying I there? Know, I have it on coffee mugs and t-shirts. <laughs> nice okay Jacob. little graphs for the kids in Sunday school class <laughs> now the one thing I mean for, and again, for those of us that you know know, know our Bibles we also know that um, Jesus basically kind of says if you want to be my disciple what do you got to do to your family he says you got to basically if you don't hate them you can't be my disciple Wait a minute, this is, this is Jesus. You know, this is the nice part of God, the New Testament God. He says you have to hate. And hate is a strong word. Mm -hmm. Now, let's just be clear. The Bible was not originally written in English. Okay? Whoa, that may shock some of y'all. Hopefully not. Um, yeah, most of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Most of the New Testament, and all of the New Testament is written in Greek. But, um, so the problem is, the, the word hate never appears in the original documents. We, we've got words that we translate as, as hate. And I, I talk about each of these different words at the beginning of each chapter for those of you guys who are kind of a little bit more nerdy. But most of the places where it says, it does talk about God's hate is poetry. Poetry, we need to be a little bit careful about taking it hyper-literally. And it, let's just say, sometimes it takes work to understand the word of God. Mm. And I'm just going to, I tell this to my students all the time. Yeah, it's hard. 
is there are, there are pastors out there that will try to make it as easy as possible for you. And while I understand that, I'm not going to make it as easy as possible for you because I don't think that's good for you. And I think you can handle it. Mm. Jesus never said, well, if you want to be my disciple, let me make it as easy as possible for you. That's it. Not Jesus talks. He's like, no, it's going to be hard. But when it comes to following Jesus, which is hard, or understanding the word of God, which is hard, it's worth it. And I think particularly understanding the passages in the Bible that talk about God hating, we can make sense of it. You know, Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated. We'll just take that for a sec. Um, in that context, there, there are a couple of things. Sometimes people just say, well, it means that I'm, this is what Paul does with this text um, in Romans. It means that he didn't choose Esau, but he chose Jacob. I think it, it can mean that. I don't think that's primarily what it means in Malachi. Some people think that looking back at Genesis, it means that he loved Esau less then he loved Jacob, which I think is actually true. And you could certainly argue that from Genesis. Although the thing I'd argue from Genesis is God loved both Esau and Jacob from Genesis very clearly. But in Malachi, let's look at Malachi. In Malachi, I think what God is saying when he says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, is he is punishing the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, for evilness and wickedness, which to some might feel like hate, but it's different than we might understand hate. Every time I look at texts in the Old Testament or when Jesus talks about hating our parents, when Jesus talks about hating our parents, what he really is saying there is, we know he wants, Jesus wants to love, he wants us to love our parents. The 10 commandments, right? Uh, the, the Honor your father and mother. Um, right when he, Jesus was on the cross, he tells John, this is your mother. Look after my mom, right? He loved his family. So we know that he doesn't literally mean hate, but it gets our attention. Mm. And in and, and that case for Jesus in Luke 14, he's saying, relative to the love you have for me as your Lord and Savior, who you are following, your priorities, your, your, your commitment, your love for your family will seem like hate. And that's what he's saying. In each of these contexts, we can make sense of it, but it does take work. Um, that's how I understand hate. I, don't, I hate talking about hate, but the Bible leaves me no choice. Well, you, you bring up one of the little ditties, or I don't want to say cliche, love yeah. the, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner. Right. But yet that that's always been a passage that I mean, not a passage, but it's always been a little phrase on one level I get and another level I'm mystified. I understand that God loves us despite our sin. However, when I read in the New Testament, a person becomes so associated with their sin that they become that called that sin, almost like how Jesus became our sin in our in our place. You get this wow. idea, you see it where Paul says, and such were some of you. You were a fornicator, an adulterer. Yep. And in, in Revelation, that's how people are described. They're called that sin. So the, it's, it's a separation that we see 
but at the same time, it's not. This is something that yeah. I, I, it's very hard to get our brains wrapped around. How do we yep. differentiate and help to see that passage a bit more clearly? That yeah, passage, and that's excuse me, that's phrase, hard. Phrase. Yeah, no, that, that that expression. And there's a lot to like about that expression. Um, uh, hate the sin. The the, the point is, um, let's love people. You know. People created in the image of God, and the, let's just let's just face it: the church is not always good at that. Um, and I I would say, you know, we could talk about in the you know we could talk about the Crusades, or we could talk about other things. How the church in this country um, largely largely supported um, slavery for you know hundreds of years. So the but the church in some ways is still doing similar things today. And we, you know maybe we won't go into details of that. So the the point: hate the sin, love the sinner. I understand what's behind it, but let's just be clear. That does not come from scripture. And that saying seems to conflict with um, other parts of scripture. One of the things I, I, I try to say though, is texts always need to be read within their context. And it's easy, you know, again, you, you look at Luke 14, when Jesus talks about, you know, um, hating their parents. You know, you could you could preach a sermon. We're called to hate our parents. That's that's missing the bigger point. The bigger point there is love Jesus, and there, there's a tendency, and I I will admit that I am guilty of this as well, to proof text. Look at a text, take it out of context, and kind of come come up with some with some rules. The problem is when we're proof texting, and we, we this happens a lot. It's easy to set up this part of the Bible against this part of the Bible. As we look at texts within their context, that is less likely to be the case. So yes, we are called to hate sin and God does as well. And there are just, not a a lot, but there are some places where it does speak about God hating people that are just really evil and wicked, sinful people. The reason he is, Hating these evildoers, though, is because he cares and he loves the people that are being victimized. He so deeply loves the people that are being marginalized, oppressed, and victimized by these evildoers. Um, The the hatred comes out of his love. And, And every time we see God speaking of hate, it's because there's this deep, love that is motivating it. And that helps me make sense of it. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the new living translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today, because understanding the Bible changes everything, 
and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. As you talk about the wrath of God, you use, and, and if I'm putting words in your mouth, please correct me, but the anger of God. And I remember doing um, a series, a sermon series years ago, and we were talking about anger. And I have encountered people that thought if they ever showed anger that they were sinning. And I said, yeah. no, 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 the, the, the scripture doesn't say that. It says in your anger, do not sin. It's, Amen. Not that. Amen. it's not that anger itself, because anger really is an emotion that comes upon you when there is a perceived injustice that you are responding to. And this is where we are image bearers and we are made in the image of God. We need to understand that and recognize that. It's that our anger can, there's a, in essence, there's that righteous anger, which you talk about, that righteous indignation with Jesus turning over tables or Jesus seeing the abuse of, of someone who has been marginalized. And then there's that sinful anger that we that we oftentimes confuse the two. And sometimes in doing so, we throw the proverbial baby out with the bathwater. We need to differentiate between what is a righteous and a uh, as a worthy anger and an unworthy anger. And, and that's part of us learning how to parse that out in ourselves as we're understanding this love of God. What, what do you find though, when people talk about this with you and you were, you were writing this book, what surprised you about understanding the wrath and the anger of God? Cause you alluded to, you said, okay, there's not a lot of verses about hate per se. There's thousands about love. And then second place though is anger and wrath. Something again, that we haven't talked about much to, in the church today. Again, I talk about the, the the anger of God in my God Behaving Badly book. I wrote a couple other articles about the anger of God um, for a couple of these dictionaries um, that are kind of sitting behind me. Um, so I've, I've thought a lot about anger. And it's like, when there's part of me that's like, why does everybody want me to talk about anger? Like you're getting asked to speak on anger. And it's like, wait a minute. Are you just be straight with me, man? Guy? If you think I'm a man, an angry person, an um, angry I'm an angry elf. <laughs> no, um, so um, I do think that one of the big things that was surprising is just how pervasive it is that the, the Bible talks about. The Bible talks about the anger of God or the wrath of God. Um, and again, and I, I, I don't want to, I, I was, I'm sort of using the words synonymously, but biblically, they're not quite synonyms. Wrath is often specifically associated with judgment. But um, the Bible talks about wrath or anger of God almost as often as it talks about love or compassion, which is was kind of discouraging to me. Except though, as I look at the places that God is angry, and um, again, it's not hard to see God's love and his compassion that is motivating his wrath and his anger. So it's, there's this deep love that's behind it. Um, and the, the only other thing, um, we, do need, we need to talk about righteous anger, mm -hmm. but the vast majority of times, and maybe I'm unique, but the vast majority of times that I get angry, it's when something doesn't go my way and I'm frustrated or someone cuts me off on the road and I get angry. My, the vast majority of my anger is not righteous. It's, um, it's about me and my pride and what I want. Okay. Um, and the, most of the times when I get angry, I get angry. Anger comes quick, right? It comes upon us instantly. Whereas the God of the Bible is persistently, consistently 
described as being slow to anger. And one of the things that people talk about, emotions are hard to control or emotions are uncontrollable. Well, emotions are hard to control, but the God of the Bible controls his emotions in a a way that's appropriate. And even particularly, he controls his anger. And he he describes himself as slow to anger. And then that is how he manifests his anger. It doesn't happen quickly, even even in places where it seems like it might be happening quickly. When God smites or Uzzah for trying to stabilize the ark in two Samuel seven, um, that that anger has been going on for a while. So that's been one of the things maybe that's surprising to me: the pervasiveness of it, but the encouraging thing that love is what's behind it, and God is consistently described as being slow to anger. Mm, which is good to remind ourselves that God is slow to anger. You mentioned that love is behind it. And I, I can see that simply because God gets angry when people don't behave in a way or in a way that is in contrary to his love, that if God, you do something that is against who he is, he responds because he wants that to be corrected. Yeah. Um, and, and it's again, without the effects of the fall on top of that. One of the passages though, that I think it has bothered so many over the years is Psalm seven, verse 11, where the scripture says, God is an honest judge. Not that people are, are sad with that one. He is angry with the wicked every day. And you try to juxtapose that with the, again, the God of the old Testament, the Marcion idea with the God of the new Testament. How do we help people to see that they're not contradictory, but they're actually complementary? How do we help people to understand that? Yeah, and, 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 and it, it's hard. And again, I just will say this again. It does take work. Um, and, um, you know, sometimes I think people want me to do their work for them. Uh, if someone were to ask me that question in, in a class, I might say, well, uh, well, Travis, what do you think? <laughs> um, uh, the classic you know, teacher response what do you think? well you know and i again i would time. say By my time i need to think i need to think yeah <laughs> no, but exactly it gives me time um, the, the other thing though i'd say is often when jesus gets asked a question he responds with a question um because it, it's it's about relationship um and so um uh and again another another uh, Another good answer to a hard question is, I don't know. Mm. Uh, and I'm okay saying, I don't know. But then sometimes I will follow that up with like, but here are a couple thoughts. Well, again, when I look at, ang- when I look at God's anger, I, 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 the vast majority of times, it's just, he's getting angry because someone in power is taking advantage of or exploiting someone who has less power. Mm. Um, you know, I, the, the, the classic place I look to, again, this is just a couple chapters after the 10 commandments. Um, the 10 commandments are Exodus 20. This is Exodus 22. God says, Exodus 22 verse 21, you shall not um, uh, uh, wrong or oppress an, uh, a foreigner or an alien. You are aliens. You're not going to abuse widow, widows or orphans. If you do, they're going to cry out and I'm going to listen to their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. Mm. It's like, that gets my attention. God's saying this to his own people. If they're not looking out for foreigners and widows and orphans, he's going to punish them in his wrath. And it's like, 
I'm troubled by this, but I'm, if I were a widow or an orphan or a foreigner that had been oppressed, I probably wouldn't be quite as troubled by it because it looks like when it doesn't seem like anybody's got my back, the God of the universe is looking out for me. And that, that feels like love. It's like when God um, delivered his people from hundreds of years of enslavement in Egypt. He, he exercised wrath towards the Egyptians in the same way that he was exp expressing deliverance and compassion. Wrath and compassion are often flip sides of the, of the same coin. It's the same action. But if you're the ones being delivered, it's compassion. If you're the ones being punished, it's judgment or wrath. Um, mm. So, I mean, I think that's um, part of how I make sense of it. But it, it, it can be confusing and, and hard, and I'll acknowledge that. Well, I think you're differentiating between the object, the recipient of that, and the action that's been done. I, I think that that the object of one is is to show kindness and love, as you said, on one level, it's compassion. On the other level, to the person that's that's had the action done, it's wrath. Just like with my kids, if they get into a fight, I say, hey, you get to go, you go to your room and you do this. And they're like, well, that's not fair. It is fair. It, it, I'm, I'm showing the same, I'm showing one kindness and the other one feels like I'm being a jerk. And it's like, well, no, it just reminds me of a referee. I was refereeing an inner city basketball game one time. It was the first time I ever did it. And it was with adults and I blew the whistle and I was tentative in the call and that caused everybody to just jump on it. And then everybody was mad. And one of the guys who had been a referee before pulls me aside. He looks at me and he goes, I don't care what call you make, just whatever call you make, say what it is. Cause somebody's going to be, somebody's lying. Somebody's not, you know, some, there's a, and, and the point was, is that whatever you do is going to frustrate some and it's going to justify and make others feel good. And when we're talking about the person of God, again, as that text even said in Psalms, he's an honest judge. There's not any falsehood. It's not tainted by evil with God. He sees it in its complete specifics and naked, if you will. And let's talk about that jealousy for a moment. You talk about jealousy and most people, when they hear jealousy, they think that is a negative emotion. And I couldn't help but think of Oprah. Oprah years ago, said that the reason that she stopped following Jesus or the Christian faith was because she heard that God was a jealous God. And she felt that that was just horrendous because of her understanding of jealousy, which I think was not correct. I think again, marred when you see jealousy in the person of God, you see the purest form of it. When we're talking about this, the, the emotion of jealousy, especially in attributing it to God, what do we often get wrong? One of the things that has maybe been helpful to me in this process is talking about the difference between maybe jealousy and envy. And maybe this definition is artificial, um, but envy can be the wanting things that aren't rightfully ours, whereas jealousy is desiring something that is rightfully ours. Okay. So, you know, I'm envious of my neighbor's whatever car or their green lawn with no dandelions. When I look at my lawn and I see what dandelions, you know, whatever. So, well, that's not rightfully mine, but I can be jealous about my wife, right? You know, she's made a commitment to me. So um, I think uh, the thing that was really helpful to me is just reading um, 
kind of psychologists or modern um, psychiatrists, counselors that have done a lot more thinking about jealousy than I have. The quote that I encountered that I found pretty helpful, Maya Angelou said, um, a little jealousy um, is a good thing. Uh, with two, oh yeah, you know, jealousy and romance is like salt and food. A little can enhance the savor, too much can spoil the pleasure, and under certain, certain circumstances, it can be life-threatening. The, this, the shocking thing about jealousy to me is jealousy honors a relationship. When it's, when it's appropriate jealousy, and there are different types of jealousy. Again, if there are counselors that are listening to this, hopefully they can kind of resonate and support this. But there's, um, there's different types. I would say you could call it healthy jealousy and unhealthy jealousy. But there's the suspicious, paranoid jealousy. And we all, you know, we, we've seen examples of that, maybe felt examples of that in our lives. But, you know, I think that the Maya Angelou quote talks about, there's something in me being jealous of my wife that is just totally healthy and legitimate. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I kind of talk about, my, my wife is right now in Liberia. She travels to Liberia. Um, uh, well, before COVID, she was going twice a year. Um, it's always hard when, when she travels because I like having her around. But there have been times when I have responded with jealousy that's unhealthy and said things like, sure, Travel as much as you want. Go to Liberia as long as you want. I don't care. I don't need you here anyway. You know, now that's not healthy. That doesn't help my marriage. That doesn't help my relationship. Okay. Um, it's a sarcasm there. But when I'm able to say, actually, the, 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 one of the things that, that um, counselors and stu- people that study jealousy more than me, they say, when you can acknowledge that you are jealous that you and you state it, that's usually a healthy sign. Mm-hmm. So when I can say to Shannon, I'm jealous of, I love you and I'm jealous of your time. I want you to be here. Um, but I also want to, you know, I want you to be able to, to go as, you know, go to Liberia as God is leading you to. So I don't want to get in the way about it, but let's talk about your travel schedule, this next trip to Liberia in light of your other travels. And let's come, let's see if we can come up with a mutual agreement about how long you'll be gone because I love you and I want you here. Mm. That goes pretty well. When I can say it like that, the God of the Bible is not, does not have a paranoid, unhealthy, suspicious jealousy but he talks about jealousy in the context of his people worshiping other gods after they have committed to worship only him. So maybe the most famous examples um, are the golden calf uh, in Exodus 32. They've just committed to to, um, uh, be worshipers of Yahweh only. And then they bow down to this golden calf. In that context, God says he's jealous. Well, that jealousy is legitimate. And again, what is motivating God's jealousy there is his love. Because he knows that only he can give his people what they need. And for him to to, to be upfront about it is actually quite loving. And um, I would say that's the most healthy kind of jealousy there is. And that's the jealousy I see. Um, associated with God in the Bible. Heard you moving toward the city Greener grass and smaller fields 
Fancy brunches, counting money The kind of life you'd take if you could steal Well, we've only covered three of these today. You have the hatred of God, the wrath of God. We've just referred to the jealousy of God. You've referred time and time again to the love of God, which is the biggest, the one that I think that from all which all the others permeate. You've also talked about the compassion of God, which in in many ways, again, is related to the love of God. But talking about the sorrow of God and the joy of God for a moment, I know we're coming uh, to the end of our time and we've only scratched the surface of what we could be talking about today. Let's talk about the sorrow of God. How do our actions bring about God's sorrow? Yeah, and this is a hard one. Again, we do need to say God doesn't feel emotions in quite the same way we do because he is is divine. He is sovereign. um, He is powerful. He is pure. He is not. um, But one of the very first things we find out about God in, in Genesis 6 is the evilness, the violence of humans um, cause God to feel, well, either sorrowful or regretful or um, grieved that he made humans. Um, the, the, the Hebrew word there, naham, can kind of get translated in different directions. Different English translations go different ways, but it either says God was sorrowful or God was grieved. Human evilness, when humans created in his image were harming other humans creating an image, it made him really, really sad. Um, the, the author of scripture, um, talks about that. And then God himself says this, I, I, I don't know. I, you, you refer to this. One of the things book. I say is say it again. You, you refer to this in the book when you talk about your son's fighting or you fighting with your brother, it grieves the parents when the kids are fighting because you want them to get along and you want them to love one another. Therefore it elicits that emotion of, of, of sorrow within us. I, I see that with my children to my middle two, my middles getting these little bickering fights and I hate it. I hate it. And I, I'm always trying yeah. to stop them. Yeah. I want them to love one another. I mean, just to give each other a hug. I, I, the oldest in the, in the, the, in the second for a while, didn't really like each other, like siblings are prone to do nothing that it's different than any other family. And then in recent years, you've seen them have this relationship develop and it does this dad's heart good to see those girls give a hug to one another yeah. because that's what I want to see. But when they're, when any of my kids are at odds with one another, I'm sorrowful. And that's, that's the same idea, right? That's what you're talking about with God. It, it, it is. Again, the sorrow of God is not as big of an emotion um, as, as uh, compassion or love, but it shows quite a bit. And obviously, you know, there are several places in the, in the, in the gospels, most perhaps famously when Jesus was um, talking to Mary and Martha and John 11 and, you know, Mary and Martha's brother Lazarus had died. Jesus comes, sees the grief there, and Jesus weeps. I I think one of the things that was, again, maybe the most surprising thing about this is there are so many people in the Bible who weep. Mm-hmm. Hezekiah wept as he was praying. Um, uh, you know, I'm teaching um, uh, the book of Nehemiah right now. When Nehemiah finds out, finds out about the situation on the wall, he weeps. Joseph Joseph weeps more than anybody, perhaps. Um, although David weeps a lot too. Um, so, you know, one of the things I say is um, Jesus in the Gospels weeps. And Jesus' followers will need to weep too. We should be broken up, sorrowful by um, the tragedy of death. 
the tragedy of sin, the tragedy of children, our children being particularly, that don't get along. Uh, and that should break our heart. Because again, what is motivating this, this sorrow and these emotions is ultimately love. Um, and, and so that's, again, helpful for me to see. Emotions and weeping is not a sign of, um, it's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of humanity. Um, although I would also say it's a sign of divinity. It's, it's a, there's a hint when we weep that we are like God because our God is a God who weeps. Um, and that's something that I think we need to talk about more. Mm, I agree that God does. I mean, you, Jesus wept. You even refer to that yeah. at, at the the face of death. And yeah. I, I, it's something to, again, remind ourselves. I, I heard of a pastor one time and he goes, Jesus didn't cry because of Lazarus death. He cried because of their unbelief. And I'm like, I, I don't think that's the case. I think you're seeing the full humanity on display at, at what death does and just sorrowful of it. Yes. He knew about the resurrection, but again, he's not removed from it. He's not this stoicist. And, and, and while he knows, it doesn't mean that that removes the emotion of what's going, what's happening and what has occurred. Yeah. Notice, notice how did the people around Jesus respond to Jesus's tears? They weren't like, oh, this is weird that, you know, this divine being, he's, he's not, he's not weeping at death. He's weeping because they don't, they have, they lack faith. That's not how they respond. They go, see how he loved him. They interpret it as love, which, um, Again, that's how the text itself interprets his behavior. Um, I've heard that that response. I don't agree with it. Um, I know what the, the 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 Greek word there is. It can it often can be associated. Um, there, there's there's words there that kind of are used to describe how Jesus was feeling. I'm not convinced, but Jesus wept because he loved him, and that's how the people mm-hmm. interpreted in that context. Which is, I think, the most important thing to keep in front of us. I just don't think that yeah. argument yep. holds water. Yeah. You know, we've, I, I know the time is brief today. What's a concluding water bottle? Like we like to give our people a water bottle for the week. What's the water bottle that our people can sip on and have their faith nourished by this week? Don't be afraid of emotions. Um, notice the emotions of Jesus in the Gospels. Notice the emotions of, of um, God in the Old Testament. Um, uh, or, or, or again, Paul in his letters, um, or John in, in the book of Revelation. The Bible is full of an emotional, the Bible is often describing an emotional God, and the people of God are often described as being emotional. And these are, um, these are perceived to be good things. Um, one of the things I, I, I tell people is, um, have a sermon that you remember from, 20 years ago, most people don't remember sermons from 20 years ago, but they often remember a, a sermons where the preacher was emotional, uh, maybe wept, maybe yelled in anger, um, maybe was delighted in, in, in joy. Emotions have profound impacts. Um, um, yes, we are convinced by ration um, and reason, mm. but we are impacted by emotions. They have a deep, deep 
uh, impact on us. So this is what I talk about at the end of the book. Um, good teachers teach emotionally. Good preachers preach emotionally. Um, and, and, you know, we've got to be genuine about it. Let's not work up emotions to manipulate. That's not why we're doing it. Mm. But as we can feel genuine emotions about our subject matters and the word of God and the ministry that God is calling those of us um, who are in ministry to should impact us emotionally. Let those emotions go. It will impact, impact people and people um, will, will be shaped just in the same way that Jesus' tears uh, and Jesus' joy and Jesus' anger in turning over the temple. Okay. We remember when Jesus overturned the tables mm-hmm. in his anger. It's one of the most famous stories. Jesus wept. It's one of the most memorable verses in scripture. Okay, it's short. It's short. But um, so the God of the Bible is emotional. The, the people of God are emotional. Uh, let's not squelch our emotions, but express them in healthy ways. It will impact and bless the people around us. Uh, how can people follow what you're doing? Um, uh, I have a, I have a website, um, David T lamb, um, uh, dot com. Uh, people, if people have questions, they can email me, uh, D lamb at missio.edu. Um, but my, my website, um, has got links that people, uh, decide they want me to come speak at an event. There's a, a, a way to do that on my website. The website's just been designed, uh, just been redesigned. Um, yeah, I love to talk to people about the Bible. Awesome. Well, Dave, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for writing the book. Really appreciate it. And I would recommend God Behaving Badly as well. I think it brings out a lot of the questions that the folks that we encounter day in and day out uh, have. And you provide a really good biblical rationale to help people understand some of these very complicated texts that we see. But Dave, thanks for coming on Apollos Water. Hey, thanks, Travis. It's been my pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Obviously, we didn't get to everything in the book. We didn't have time to get into the specifics about God's joy or compassion, though I think that you caught how God's love is at the heart of all the other emotions. I really appreciated both David's book and my conversation with him because he forces us to take what the Bible says about God seriously. In part one, very early on, David said he loves to give others a love for God's word. I personally really appreciate that even when doing so can make me uncomfortable, even when trying to figure out some of this stuff is work, and it is. Emotions are part of understanding God, and because we are made in His image, ourselves. If we are going to pursue Christ's mission in all of life, we can't leave our emotions out. Like David said at the beginning, we can't be afraid of emotions, but we also have to remember that they can mislead us because we are, after all, fallen. When we look to God's emotions, we see emotions at work purely. We may have to do some hard work to figure it out, but it's there. I was struck by his illustration of sermons that impact us, the ones that have an emotional component to the truth they are teaching. Sure, emotions can be manipulated and we have to watch out for that. Emotions can pull us in directions that we ought not to go because they drag us against what God has said. But that's not because emotions are bad but that they have been twisted in the fall. Following Jesus means that we have to get our emotions in line with him. They are a part of who we are. I think there's a reason we need to remember those emotional sermons. 
because they communicate to whole people. The content is not just abstract, it's real life. And Jesus calls us to pursue his kingdom here in the real life world. Thank you for joining our conversation today. Please check out this episode or any of our other conversations on our YouTube channel. Be sure to subscribe there. Also, leave us a review or interact with us on any of our pages because we want to hear from you. And I want to thank our Apollos Water team for helping us to water the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody.